welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 14, as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew, a title I've been series, entitled the series, Savior King and His Kingdom. The book of Matthew was written primarily to describe Jesus as king. Um, you know, the, to the Jews, they were waiting for a Savior King to come, uh, the Messiah, Someone would come and rule over um, them and to deliver them from their enemies. And Jesus is king, but he's also much more than that. And our text today, we're going to focus on that, that much more of Jesus. And we're going to see in this text one of those evidences of his much more. And in Matthew 14, we're not going to get through all of it today, but Matthew 14 contains three Miracles. One, is a, one of them is a set of miracles and then two individual miracles. And two of those miracles are probably the most memorable miracles that he performed. So we'll get into one of those today and we'll save the, the last one for next week, Lord willing. But first, in this text, we're going to focus on one of the villains of the book of Matthew. Before we do that, we should probably pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for your presence here today, thanking you, Lord God, that you have gathered us here today for the purpose of getting to know you better. And as we get to know you better, Lord, we, we, we can grow in our faith in such a way that we can walk with you more closely, that we can experience your love, your presence, your grace, your mercy, your hope, your peace, all of those things you promised to us. Lord, we experience them by getting to know you better. And so we open ourselves up to you right now. Holy Spirit, come. I pray, Lord, that you would come, that you would fill me to overflowing, Lord God, that I might speak your words and your words alone, that I might speak the words of, of, of hope that, that people need, the, hope, the words of peace and strength and courage and everything else that we might need in a time like this. I pray, Lord, that you would minister to your people. And Lord, as we bring all of our stuff, Lord, we know, Lord God, that you are, you are bigger than anything that we might bring. And Lord, so we lay it all down to you, knowing that you'll help us, you'll take care of us, you'll lead us, you'll go guide us, protect us, and provide for us. And we trust you for all of those things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So, King Herod hears about the things that Jesus is doing, and primarily he's probably hearing about the crowds and the miracles and those sorts of things. 
And he makes this assumption that it is John the Baptist raised from the dead, which is interesting because as far as we know, John didn't do any miracles. And, and so we're not really sure what Herod is thinking. Herod probably didn't think very clearly most of the time, but that's a different, different message. Herod the Tetrarch is also known as Herod Antipas, and he was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod who was king at the time of Christ's birth, and he was the one that had all the boys killed in Bethlehem um, in the account that we read earlier. We don't have time to go through all of the weird, dysfunctional, strangeness of Herod and his family. It, 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 it boggles the mind, the things that, that, that not just he did, but his father did as well. Um, that it was just bizarre. And we're going to get into one of those things because it's part of the text here today. But he was, he, was, he was messed up. He was a product of his environment, you can say that, but he also made some really terrible, terrible choices. We're going to talk about one of them right now. So the rest, of, the rest of this part tells us of what happened to John the Baptist. In verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. That, that tells you something right there. Because John had said, it's not lawful for you to have her. Again, I'd have to chart this whole thing out for you to understand all the, the strangeness of this relationship. But Herod had a half-brother. His half-brother was John. John was married to Herodias, which there is also some relationship issues going on there. And, and Herod was married to someone else. They met at one point. He proposed to her while they were both still married. They ended up divorcing their spouses and marrying. So everything about the relationship was twisted and messed up and wrong. And, and I, 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 I kind of came across this proverb, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. It epitomizes Herod. There are these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. So six out of seven for certain Herod was guilty of, and I'm fairly certain that all seven. Herod's picture could have been right next to to this, this verse. Herod was one of those people who really would not tolerate someone speaking truth around him if it contradicted his truth. And John was one of those types. He would speak truth no matter who was around him, even someone as powerful and influential as Herod. And so as, as John speaking truth to Herod, telling him everything about his relationship with Herodias was messed up. It seems that Herodias is the one that was the most upset about it. And she did not like John, and so she influenced her husband to the point where he had him arrested. Verse 5, and although he, Herod, wanted to put him, John, to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him, John, as a prophet, and they did rightly so because he was. In Mark's gospel, it tells us that Herod had mixed feelings about this, that he was 
kind of really kind of conflicted about John. In Mark 6.20, it says, John, Herod feared John, and that's that reverential kind of fear, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And so while Herod kind of was kind of freaked out by John, he, he at the same time sensed, okay, there's something something good about John, something right about John. And so he wouldn't let Herodias have her way completely because if Herodias had her way, John would already be dead. And uh, so Herodias was the one that wanted him gone. And, uh, and then an opportunity presented itself. And it presented itself in a pretty just not good way. Verse 6. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, by the way, there's only two birthdays mentioned in the Bible. This is one of them. The daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, we need to interpret the word please there. The most common interpretation of this is it pleased him in a perverse way. This is his stepdaughter, maybe 16 or 17, and he's having impure thoughts about her. Verse 7, therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. She having been prompted by her mother, meaning her mother set this whole thing up. Her mother wanted John dead so bad that she talked her 16-year-old daughter into dancing in a way that would lead her stepfather to have really bad thoughts. This is a really great place to hang out, I'm guessing. Wouldn't want to be anywhere near Herod's house. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. She, having prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. The king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. Herod was consumed by his sinful pleasures. And once someone starts down that path of, of seeking for and desiring pleasure in the way that he was, it's very hard to turn away from it. Everything about your flesh desires it and, 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 and seeks it and, and is pleased by it. We often can convince ourselves once we start down those kinds of paths that we won't be happy again any other way. That if we were to turn away from this, we won't, we won't be happy, we won't be satisfied, we won't be content, we won't be whatever. And the lesson for us in, in the life of Herod, there are lots of them, we'll pick one of them for this morning, and we must not allow room in our lives for sin. The moment you start allowing room, saying, okay, I will tolerate this little indiscretion, this little whatever you might call it, it becomes easier and easier to do it. When we discover sin in our lives, and, and, and if we're faithful to God and we're seeking God in his word and we're, and we're growing in our faith, you will discover sin in your life. That's just the reality because unless you're perfect, there is still sin in your life. And sometimes it may take years, maybe even decades 
to, to finally get down to the root of something that's inside of you that you just never knew it was there. It's always been there, but you didn't know it. And over time, God opens it up further and further and further. At some point, you look at it and say, ooh, that's nasty. And what are we gonna do when we discover it? We can accept it. Oh, well, that's just the way that I am, right? No, it's not right, but sometimes that's the way people do it. We can ignore it. Oh, it'll just go away. It'll go away on its own. Probably not. You can try to negotiate with it. Well, okay, God, yeah, that's gonna happen, so I'm gonna do this over here to make up for that, right? Negotiating your way around sin. No, that doesn't work either. Or you can eradicate it. Guess which one you think God wants you to do with it. It's God's desire that we would acknowledge our sin. That whenever you see it, you just acknowledge it. Okay, 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 God, it's sin. I finally recognize, see it finally, it's sin. And then you treat it as an enemy of your soul, an enemy living inside of you. And you do like what Israel's doing right now with Hamas. You hunt them down and you, you eradicate them. That's the only thing you can do. If you allow sin any place in your life, it will destroy something. That's all it can do. That's all sin can do. It cannot bring you any lasting pleasure, cannot bring you fulfillment, can you, cannot bring you closer to God. All it can do is destroy and so the only thing that we ought to do with it is acknowledge it and then eradicate it. Do whatever it takes and allow God to do that work inside of you. Herod knew something was off. Herod knew there was something about John that he should take seriously, that he should acknowledge, that he should, he should accept, but you know, it was his conscience. There was a, there, he still had something of a conscience. Not a great one, obviously. You know, people had asked John at one point if he was the Messiah. Remember, we, we covered that. And he told them, no. <laughs> no, I'm not. My place is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then he eventually pointed at him. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We come here to this text here. His job was done. He had finished his ministry. So one of my, one of my, the lessons that we can draw from this, it's not the point of this message, but it, it's one of the lessons we get from this is that you are not done until God says you're done. But when God says you're done, you're done. And it's time to go. So if you're still here, guess what? You're not done When people tried to compare John's ministry to Jesus, now John had a very effective ministry until Jesus showed up. And people started saying, hey, look, look, John, look what's happening with that Jesus guy over there. His response was, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He says, I, I, I need to be nothing. 
I need to be gone. He needs to be everything. And that's the truth in all of our lives. Christ must be everything. The more of me that's in me, the less Jesus there is. And the less Christ there is, the less people will see Christ. All focus must be on Christ. And that's our, our text then turns to Christ. Verse 12. Then his disciples, that'd be John's disciples, came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. You know, one of the things I think it's really important for us to do as we're studying the scriptures is we've got to be so careful not to just read them. I think we get tempted to just read through the scriptures. And we don't, we don't use a God-given imagination to see the story, to understand what's going on, and to, and to put ourselves, try to put ourselves into the story. Now, the story's not about you, will never be about you, but we can put ourselves there and, and use the text to help us to be in that moment and try to understand it. We, we, we get to this place. Jesus went to this place to be alone. Why? Why, why would he do that? You know, we, we must remind ourselves the things about Jesus. John was Jesus' cousin. They were related. So, you know, what would you do if you heard that your cousin was beheaded by, you know, Governor Gavin? <laughs> Probably not going to happen this month, but, you know, hang on. Who knows what might be coming in the future? We're not on YouTube, so I can say whatever I want. <laughs> and what would, you, what would you feel? We've got to remember that there is an element where we, we, sometimes, we sometimes focus on the reality of who Jesus is, right? Jesus is who? God. But what else was he? Man. And he felt the same things that we do. When his, when his cousin was beheaded, now he may have known it was coming. Still, he felt something. And John's death, whether he knew it or not, was not just to be dismissed as part of the plan. It always bothers me when I hear, you know, somebody dealing with a tragedy or, or, or commenting on a tragedy somebody else is dealing with, oh, it's a part of God's plan. Okay, yeah, okay, yes, it is. But that's not the point. That's not what you say at that time. There's feelings, there's emotions, and those emotions are real. And we don't just dismiss them. Man, we don't, we don't worship those emotions. We don't let those emotions control, emotions control us, but they're real and we have to deal with them. And Jesus felt those things. The Bible tells us very clearly, he felt what we feel. And we must never forget those kinds of things. If you, you know, in, in my Bible, you know, verse 12 is separated by, from verse 13 by a heading. Almost like, okay, it's separated. No, it's not separated. It goes together. 
Jesus wanted to take some time to be by himself. There were things that he needed to think about, things he needed to, he, he needed to spend time with the Father about. And so he, he, he knew that if he hung around the multitudes, what was going to happen? Well, what we'll see shortly, it was going to happen. And he wasn't going to have that time. He would eventually, we're going to see it in a little bit, he's, he, or next week we're going to see, he did get his time. Yeah, he, that was his plan. His plan was to get away, spend some time with the Father, and as sometimes happens, maybe, you know, maybe almost every time, plans change. Verse 14. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. This is the first miracle that we'll see. We're going to see two of them, two of the three in chapter 14 today. He healed their sick. Move with compassion, it says. And it, and it speaks of, again, feeling the, the, the idea when they're moved with compassion, something in the gut just you know, is, is feeling something. He's feeling it in the, in the deepest part of himself. He's feeling something for him. You know, it talks about the idea of, of his heart going out to them. I love that about Jesus. He felt these things. He looked at that and said, you know, there was some, some emotional response that happened with him. And when you understand something about true compassion is never just about what we feel. True compassion always complete, it includes an element of doing. There's always something that comes from it. You know, if you can look at the things that are going around the world and, and, it doesn't, and, it, and you don't get stirred up about it, then that's, that's a bad sign, first off. But if you do get stirred up about it, but it doesn't stimulate you to do anything, that's not a healthy sign either. Now, there's certain things that certain things happen, like, like the things that are going on in Israel. Now, what can you do about that? That's not a darn thing you can do about that, except to pray. There may be other things. You know, that, yeah, that doesn't matter what happens in life, we can always pray. And you know, once you start praying, then other things start coming to you that you can do as well. We always start with prayer. There's always something we can do and we ought, if we're truly like Christ, which means that other people's needs take a, a, a place of, of precedence in our lives, where, we, where it's not just about me, not just about what I'm doing, not just about what I'm feeling, but, what, but my feelings go out to them. I, I, I sympathize with them, maybe even empathize with them depending on the circumstances. And when I do that, there's, a, there's this this inclination, there's this draw, there's this movement, there's this desire. I, I, need, I need to do something about that. True compassion involves what we do as well as what we feel. Well, here we have Jesus. He's come out to this desolate place. Desolate meaning it's this just basically wilderness. There's nothing around there's no 7-Elevens, there's no, there's no, you know, anything around. No Motel 6s, it's just desert. And he came out there because he wants to be alone. But then the needs of the multitude. And we're going to see, before we get to the end of this text, that there are at least 5,000, some estimate as many as 24,000 people present. 
Why did Jesus want to be alone? One of the reasons it could, John's death could have foreshadowed something else that was coming into Jesus' life, his own death. John came to prepare the way. What way? The way of the cross. Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was coming. That's one of those things that just causes me to marvel. There wasn't a moment in any of the Gospels that Jesus didn't know what the end was. He knew what was coming. He knew the cross was coming. He knew the abuse and the beating and the scourging and the, he knew all of that was coming. And we know that that was not just something that he just accepted. He accepted it, but it, 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 it was difficult for him. We know that because we're eventually we're going to get to the Garden of Gethsemane and we're going to see it described to us how hard it was for him, what was coming. John's ministry was to prepare the way for the Christ, that Christ and that way was the way of the cross. Jesus would soon make that turn and start heading for Jerusalem. He was on the way to the loneliness of the atonement. As he alone atoned for the sins of the whole world. As he experienced for the first time in eternity separation from the Father. As the Father would turn away from him as he bore the sins of the whole world. Now, we can't understand that. It's not humanly possible to understand what that was like for Christ, but he knew it was coming, and he went resolutely to that. Without hesitation, without a pause, he knew it was coming, and I believe one of the reasons he wants to be alone right here is because John's death made, that, made it just more real. It was always real for him, but it just brought it to front of mind. He said, I, I need to spend some time with the Father right now. Jesus seeking to, to spend time and contemplate this, this selfless act of righteousness, of sacrifice for the spiritual needs of the whole world is interrupted by the material needs of the multitude. And that's the reality of ministry. You know, we, we, you know our desire as ministers is to, is to meet the spiritual needs of the body. But you know what? There's some physical and material and, and worldly needs that, have, that come up as well. And, and that's exactly what we see going on in our, in our text today. Jesus spends the whole day, a marathon of healing. Healing every disease and injury. And it doesn't say it, but there may have been demons being cast out. Who knows, maybe even some dead race. We don't know what all the deal was, but there was a lot going on. And as the day wears on, the disciples come to Jesus with a very logical suggestion. I mean, what they, what they present to Jesus, yeah, that makes perfect sense, unless you're Jesus. Verse 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place. I mean, it's desolate out here. And the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves 
food. You know, it may have been logical. You know, there's a part of me that, that can, can so relate to the disciples here. You know, there's certain times where, where you're, you're doing ministry and you get to the end of whatever ministry thing you've got to do. Dude, I'm tired. <laughs> I, need a, I need a nap. And then somebody comes to you and, you know, and they say, hey, you know, you can go ahead and go. We'll take care of this. And, and oh, okay, good. I'm, see ya. I'm out of here. Jesus doesn't do that here. This, this, this is amazing to me. He came to be alone. The multitude shows up. He spends the whole day healing him. The disciples say, send him away so that you can you know, get back to what you wanted to do. And Jesus, eh, nah. Let's do something else. Verse 16, but Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of, <clears throat> one of the more memorable of Jesus' miracles. I mean, people know it. Even unbelievers know about the feeding of the 5,000. They've heard it somewhere. They've heard about it since we were young, either spiritually or, you know, you know from Sunday school. We've heard about the feeding of the 5,000. The fact that Jesus wanted to be alone, I believe, is an expression of Christ's humanity. He was just a, he was a man. He needed some time to deal what was going on inside of him. But rather than being alone, he engages in this marathon of healing. Then the multiplying of the loaves of fishes is not an expression of his humanity. It's an expression of his divinity. Jesus, fully human and subject to all the same desires and same things that other humans are subject to, though he does it perfectly and sinlessly, at the same time, fully God and perfectly holy. How do we respond to this miracle? How do we respond to the reality that Jesus is man and God and that he, he did this radical miracle. Now, you, you've been around the church for any length of time. You've heard messages on this text. Oh, he takes, you know, Larry talked about it. Take the little bit, and God multiplies it and, make, and does all this stuff with it. And I think that's a, obviously a va very valid, great, better preacher than I have preached that message. So I'm not going to try to tell them that they're not, they're not getting it. But is there more to it than that? You know, this, this miracle, there is no human experience that compares to it. You can't look at something and say, oh yeah, that's like such and such a thing that happened here or that thing that happened there or if we do this and that. Can... No, there's nothing, nothing in human experience that compares to it. It's impossible. It's unbelievable. It can't be duplicated except by Jesus who does it in the next chapter. Again, this miracle is a declaration of who 
Christ is. He is God. This is the supernatural, creative power of God. This is the power that created everything at work. This is the power that made everything we see, everything we know, come into existence. In Colossians 1.17, the, the apostle Paul, speaking of Christ, says this, 116 and 17, for by him, Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Which things? All things. Who did it? Christ did it. Jesus did it. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. What does that say about Jesus? <laughs> it's all about him. He made it all. He made it all for himself. And, all, and because of him, it continues to exist because of Christ. Elsewhere, the Bible says he holds it all together. It's radical. This miracle is a proof that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. You know, in this text, we learn about Christ's contemplation. We learn about his compassion. We learn about his provision. And all of those are true. But the most important lesson about this text is that Christ is with us. God with Rick. God with Kelly. God with you and you and you, all of us. I'm not going to name all of you because I'll miss somebody and then I'll get in trouble. <laughs> Two names I know I can, I can get for sure. God in the flesh, with us. Brothers and sisters, the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because sometimes we listen, we read a text, we listen to a text, we've heard so many sermons on it that when it comes up again, our, our spiritual eyes glass over. I know this text. I remember this story. I've heard it since I was a child. And it becomes common. God in the flesh showed up and did something that is humanly impossible. Now, a lot of the things that Jesus did, he's gonna do another one in the next miracle. But we must pause and reflect upon that. We have got to be so sensitive to the changes that are going on in our heart. We began this text talking about Herod. Okay, if there was anybody about as far away from Jesus as could possibly be, it would be Herod. He was pretty messed up. He wasn't always as bad as this. At one point, he was a child. And though he grew up in a pretty hard place, a pretty corrupt and wicked and terrible place, over time, his heart got harder and uglier and more wicked and more evil. Listen, as believers, we're not immune to that. We're not immune to our hearts becoming dull to God. We're not immune to our hearts being distracted away from the things of God. We need to look at texts like this, and we need to, we need to stop and examine our heart when we come to something like this. Do I reverence this 
text? Do I recognize that God in the flesh did something that is humanly impossible? Or am I just commenting, oh, God can take my little thing and make it big? Come on. God wants so much more from us. He wants us to look at that and wonder, God, you are amazing. This is not about the five loaves and the two fish. It's not about the 5,000 men and everybody else. It's not about the multiplication of all that stuff. It's about the fact that God in the flesh was right there. Each of us, as we, as we spend time, and I know I'm, 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 I'm speaking probably mostly to believers. I'm guessing most people watching online are believers too. But, but every choice, every thought, every action is a choice to either approach God or to move away from God. And sometimes those choices are so subtle and the move is so small that we may not recognize where we're going. And then the next choice, and then the next choice, and then the next choice. And then we get to a place and we look around and we wonder, how did I get here? Why doesn't this text fill me with awe? Why aren't I just amazed at who God is? Why aren't I filled with wonder at his presence? You know, why during the worship am I thinking about something other than being in the presence of God and lifting my voice up in absolute adoration of him? Brothers and sisters, I think one of the things that we forget as believers, is that we're still human. And the human part of us sometimes doesn't think about God the way that we should. And so I don't say this to rebuke anybody. I don't say it to condemn anybody. I say it to challenge us to a more pure, a deeper, a more intimate walk with God. One of those ones that experiences the power of God because if we can read a text like this and not be moved by it, then that's the question. Is God's power actually working in you and moving through you? And I think that's what we want, right? Anybody want the power of God moving in them and through them? Then we had to cause, pause and look at these things and say, God, where am I? And Herod... Yeah, I, I don't know how you get, I mean, I, I guess I can look around the world and see lots of guys like Herod. Yeah, we got an example of that on October 7th. You know, how did he get to the place that he could ignore his conscience and allow his conscience to be so seared that he could look into the lifeless eyes of John the Baptist on that platter and then turn back to his party? And we come to an account like this, an account that we've read hundreds of times, well, dozens, we'll say dozens, we'll be generous, dozens of times, and heard lots of messages by preachers far better than I am. Are we allowing 
the Spirit of God to fill our heart with awe and wonder. Imagine being one of the disciples in that moment. I, I love, I, I mean, God gave us an imagination for a reason, I believe. And one of them is imagine yourself sitting there and Jesus saying this and you're thinking like, uh, okay, okay, he's gonna, you, you want five loaves, two fish, you're gonna feed 5,000 plus people with this? Okay, let's see that. And boop, there they are. They take those baskets and they start handing them out and, 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 and imagine as one of the disciples, okay, I, I know where these came from. I know what we started with, to be blown away by that. And then imagine the people. They had nothing. They had nothing to eat, and yet, and yet food just keeps coming, coming. You know, they, they can probably see Jesus sitting over there do, or standing, whatever he was doing, and, and people keep leaving him and keep bringing food out, and like, wow. And we eat and eat and eat until we're full. And then there's leftovers. Imagine being there. And then remind yourself, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. David, the team are going to come up and do worship. One last song. Christ Jesus creator God, took this maybe two handfuls of food and then fed thousands of people with it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that it really happened? Do you believe that it could happen again? Like We know it did because it happened in the next chapter. So it happened at least twice. <laughs> do you believe it could happen today? Do you believe it could happen today to you? Jesus calls us to walk where only our faith can see the path. One of the things that occurred to me as just this morning as I was preparing. You know, most of the people there brought nothing. All they did was receive. Only one person brought something. Everyone else had nothing. But they all went away full. Now, I believe it's the calling of God for all of us to bring what we have to him. Whatever it might be, bring it. Whatever small or great, very little or very much, whatever you have, you bring it to him. But if you're empty, come. If you have nothing, and whatever that might be, whether it be stuff or, or you're just feeling empty or whatever is going on inside of you and you just, I just, I just, I need God says, come. Jesus says, come. I'll fill you up. And so we have to believe that Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. I don't have to bring anything to God. Matter of fact, the only thing that I have to bring to God is my sin. I have nothing else. 
And if I do have something, he gave it to me. And he calls me to give it to him for his use, for his purpose. And yeah, he'll take it and he'll multiply it. And that's an amazing and a marvelous thing. But we should never move past this. Jesus, my Emmanuel, my God with me. Because it's then that the power of God can move through me. When I look at this and realize I don't need to bring anything, he can make it all out of nothing. He can make it. Whatever I need, he brings. We come to a text like this, we need to open our heart wide and say, God, speak to me. Be with me. Provide for me. Whatever it is I need, I can come empty and you'll fill me. Heavenly Father, we do come in whatever state we're in, whatever condition our heart is in, whatever situation is going on in our hearts and lives, and know that, Lord, that, that one thing is absolutely true. You are with me. I don't have to bring anything. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to, I, I, I just have to, to just open my heart to you and you're right there. And Lord, most of us here have done that spiritual work of receiving you as our Lord and Savior. But Lord, we, we sometimes let life just, just get in the way of just marveling at the fact that you are with us. In a text like this, this miraculous display of your power display of your divinity. Lord, I think sometimes we, we focus on the wrong things. And I pray for each of us, Lord, that we would, if we have, um, not just in this text, but just in life, if we focus on the wrong things, that you would help us to see that. Now, Lord, it's all about you, Jesus. You created this world by your power, by your creative power, and by your creative power, you sustain it. It's all about you. You made it, and you made it for yourself. You made us for you. And Lord, if we had allowed anything to get in the way of that, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent, to confess, Lord, that you are God, that you are God with us, and that we would seek that intimacy of presence that, that only comes when we seek you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because I know, Lord God, that you, you desire that in each of us. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here, anyone watching online that has not started that relationship or maybe that they, they question whether or not they actually are in that real relationship with you, whether they know, if they know that you're in them or not, Lord, that there is a way that we can know. Your Bible tells us we'll confess our sins and receive your sacrifice on the cross for us, that we will be saved. And so I pray for anyone here, anyone watching online, if they have not humbled their heart before you, confessed their sins before you, and received you as their Savior, they would do it right this very moment. They would open themselves up, allow the Holy Spirit to come in, to do that work that only you can do, God. And that, that we can walk 
in that, in that intimate relationship with you, Jesus, knowing that you are always with us, whether we have much or little, whether we are great or small, you love us. You died for us. And if we'll believe that, then we have the promise of eternity with you in heaven. So we thank you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for those, those with little, those who have needs, those who have, have emptiness, Lord God, that they would turn to you and they would invite you to come and to fill them with you. And that, Lord, whatever their, whatever their need might be, to trust you to meet that need and to wait on you until you do and to seek you, to know you better until you do and to obey you as you direct them until you meet their need. I thank you, Lord, for your grace, your mercy, your love. And I pray, Lord God, as we take this time, we, we sing this last song of praise to you that we would do with a heart, literally using our God-given imagination to see ourselves standing in the very throne room of God and knowing your smile upon our lives. And so I pray, help us to see you now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.